Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. This is a really interesting lecture series that uh, the college has put together. And and I, as I say, I'm really pleased that I'm the first speaker. And of course, you know, I've lived this world for, for pretty well all my career of climate change. But what I wanted to do in this lecture, rather than just give my very um, boring sort of science talk about why the climate is changing and what we need to do about it, is just give you a slightly different framing of how we look at it and how we think about it, um, which is broader than just climate science. Um, and of course, we are all looking for solutions. And I, again, I don't want to talk about net zero and mitigation and adaptation. It's very grand ideas and the sort of things that go on at the, 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 the COPs um, and you know, the latest things on loss and damage and so forth. I just wanted to give you a sense of some little nuggets of things that might set you all thinking as you go into the rest of the series. Um, so I've been retired now for over six years. And so, you know, this is my sort of personal view out of things and the ideas that I have that I'm thinking about while I'm still doing bits of work. So I'm going to share my screen now and um, give you the presentation. And I do hope you uh, enjoy it and take some things away from it to discuss in your subsequent lectures. Well, what am I going to talk about today? I'm going to talk about taking the planet into uncharted territory. What do I mean by that? So that's what we're going to explore in the next 40 minutes or so. Um, and I thought I'd start with a, a picture of what are we talking about. And um, this is actually a picture from Apollo 8 in the late 1960s, but it was the first time anybody had ever seen this view of our planet, this wonderful blue marble. And this is the... the the surface of the moon and, and the contrast between the two um, is really extraordinary and it just there's a jewel in the sky against this um, completely dead grey surface and yet we're close neighbours. Um, it's also of course sort of 50 years since the moon landing uh, which was at the end of last year and uh, and if we think about these two orbs, if you like, this blue marble and, and, and our moon. Um, the uh, difference in, this, in the climate, if you like, is huge. So, of course, the moon's temperature, um, it has, of course, no atmosphere. It ranges from 100 degrees C during the lunar day to minus 173 degrees C in the lunar night. Now here, the days and nights, of course, are 28 days or, or, or whatever, that, that, that's the, 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 
the diurnal range of the moon is, is represented in through that 28 day cycle. And if you think about it, well, how did the astronauts land on the moon? It's a pretty, pretty um, unfriendly pace with temperatures like that. And actually they had to land in the early morning. You have to land either at, at dawn or sunset. Um, otherwise you'll fry or you'll freeze. And I think it's just a wonderful example of we're so close to the moon and they couldn't be more different uh, and, and the moon more inhospitable. Um, and of course, the reason is, this is another view, there's the moon in the distance this time, is of course that the Earth has an atmosphere. Um, and this is a, again a, a beautiful uh, picture, probably taken from the space station. Um, and what's so amazing about it is this, this huge Earth has this wonderful atmosphere but it's only about 300 miles thick and most of our atmosphere is within 10 miles of the surface. It's a, this enormously thin blanket compared to the diameter of the earth which is around 8,000 miles. So we're talking about this incredibly thin skin and that does some amazing things for us. Um, and then without that blanket, here we get another view of it, looking at sort of slant-wise, and we can see all the weather going on and the clouds over the ocean and the reflection of the clouds. Without our blanket, Earth's average surface temperature would be near minus 18 instead of the much warmer 15 degrees C, which makes actually the abundance of life um, on, the, on this planet possible. And here, you know, they're not as extreme. If we didn't have a, a blanket, minus 18 is not as extreme as the moon, and that's because our day is 24 hours compared to 28 days. Um, that's just by the way. Um, but here we are with this, again, this incredibly thin atmosphere that does these amazing things and keeps us warm. And the reason for that is that there's always been a greenhouse effect. And, and the dominant greenhouse gas uh, for us is water vapour and then, of course, as life emerged, CO2. Um, and um, you can see also, also all the wonderful weather patterns that, that are formed in, in, in our atmosphere in, in that bottom, actually, 10 miles that I talked about. So this is what we're... This is, when we think about the greenhouse effect, it's actually really good to think about the extraordinary position Earth is in, that with this very, very fine atmosphere uh, and all the Earth system cycles that go on to maintain it, life has flourished. And then, of course, along come us and start messing about with this atmosphere, this very thin blanket and uh, changing the concentration of greenhouse gases. But, you know, this is not necessarily, um, this is the sceptic's view. Well, climate change, of course, is about how the world responds to changes in external forcing, whether it's sun or human beings. And, of course, climate change has always happened. Um, and this is just a very iconic record from uh, Antarctic ice core records. And, and of course, in the not so very long ago, when I was chief scientist at the Met Office, the sceptics would say, well, OK, so what? What's different now? 
Uh, we've been in and out of ice ages and all that sort of stuff, and we're still here and everything's fine. Um, this is the, the, the record of carbon dioxide and temperature from over the last 800,000 years. And we can see that carbon dioxide and temperature go up and down. And this is in response to, to changes in the input of the sun and, and to our orbit around the sun. Um, and we get these amazing, what almost look like the heartbeat of the planet um, as we go through these cycles. And we can see that if we look um, particularly at carbon dioxide, um, that as the, the, the carbon dioxide actually follows very slightly the temperature. So the temperature, the planet warms first and then the carbon dioxide increases. And this is due to uh, the, the carbon cycle responding to a warming world. So that's the first thing actually to say about this graph is that temperature leads carbon dioxide. You'll also see that the highest level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, at least for 800,000 years, is around uh, 280 parts per million by volume. Um, so this is an important number, 280. And we can see that in the very recent past, we've come into this warm period out of the last ice age. We're now in what we call uh, an interglacial, so the temperature is around um, about 15 degrees now, and um, we can see that that uh, if we look part in the past, we should be going into another ice age airlock. So there's the record last 800,000 years. Um, where did really anthropogenic climate change start. I think it started actually, the beginning of it all, I always think of Charles David Keeling, the Keeling curve. And Keeling, David Keeling had set up an observatory in Hawaii, a very pristine environment and started measuring CO2. And around the time I began my career in the Met Office, uh, scientists were beginning to sort of get slightly anxious that the CO2 levels were rising. And we can see that actually in 1960, it was at about um, 315 ppmv. So already higher than 280. And we can see actually in the red curve is actually the breathing in and out of the biosphere of the Northern Hemisphere. That's what that is. That's a seasonal cycle in the greening of vegetation. Um, the plants taking up CO2 in northern summer and dying in northern winter. So, um, but in 1972, it was around about 320. And we began to get sort of slightly interested in this as an academic exercise. People said, well, there's something here, but we don't know very much about it. But of course, by 1990, uh, we get to the creation of the Hadley Centre in the Met Office and uh, a very major speech by the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, alerting the world to the problems of climate change. And we have the first IPCC report. And then at that point, we were around about 350. Today, this is a very recent curve from a few days ago, 
we are now 420. So that's gone up 100 in pretty well uh, my working life. So uh, that's a problem. And if we look at it now and go back to the uh, record that we had of the past 800,000 years and we put 420 on that graph, we are, as you can see, uh, way off. Um, it's very frightening. This is a planet that hasn't been here at least for 800,000 years. And it's all about humans exploiting ancient carbon, burning fossil fuels. And one of the, so there are two issues here. First of all, uh, it's an extraordinary level of carbon dioxide. But actually, if you look at the shape of these curbs, the pace of change uh, in the last century or so is 10 times faster than anything in the past and outside the last 800,000 years. So here we're looking at the pace of change as well as actually the absolute change. Because the pace of change is now so fast that many natural systems are, are struggling to adapt. And so this is another key point to remember when you think about climate change. We can also look at it in the context now of temperature. And this is why I do say taking the planet into uncharted territory, at least in terms of human civilization. So what does that increasing CO2 mean? It means that uh, in the last century or so, the world's temperatures, and this is for the Northern Hemisphere, actually, where we have good records, the, the, globe, the, the, the surface temperature has risen um, and is now outside anything at least for the last 1,000 years, even allowing for uncertainties in the reconstructions of the past. And this is quite an old curve, but actually it doesn't really, graph, it doesn't really matter. The point is that the projections are very frightening indeed, um, because they are so far off anything that the world civilization has seen during this interglacial that we know things are going to be incredibly challenging. So this is why I say we're taking the planet into uncharted territory. Um, we can actually go even further back if you really want to think about it as, as taking the planet into uncharted territory. We can look at it in the context of Earth's, Earth's history, going way, way back to millions of years before present. And it's, a, as you can see, a, a, a different scale for different sections. And I, I was showing you the heartbeat of the planet in the middle here um, in, in, in the Pleistocene, which is the, uh, the ice sheets and the, the orbital changes. And then we can see we can go back into the very, very deep past um, and see that actually we probably have to go back 50, 60 million years before we see temperatures um, around those that we might possibly be looking at um, within this uh, millennium if we continue to emit CO2. So I think, you know, in every respect, whether we look at it in terms of human civilization or in the context of Earth's history, we are taking the planet into uncharted territory, and the pace of change is incredibly fast. So um, it, 
just going back again into a little bit of history, of course, you know, I said that David Keeling and his, and, and his beginning of monitoring CO2 was the beginning of it all. And of course, in a way, um, I think for modern, uh, since, since the, the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century and now, um, and, and, and now into the 21st century, I think that that's true. But of course, uh, um, Arrhenius, and, and others were already thinking about this uh, way back at the where the industrial revolution had already started um, to to ramp up. And he wrote in in Worlds in the Making in 1908. He 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 foresaw, I think, very much what we're seeing today. In this case, he talks about um, the the combustion of coal to increase the percentage of carbon dioxide in the air to a perceptible degree. Well, we know that's true. We know that it's not just coal, but it's oil and gas and and one or two other things. And then he makes a prediction that any doubling of the percentage of CO2 in the air would raise the temperature of the Earth's surface by four degrees C. And actually, it quite remarkably, I mean, this was from some very, very simple physics, um, that's pretty much the ballpark figure that the latest IPCC report thinks as the most likely number for doubling of carbon dioxide. Um, but then, so he he saw that actually there was going to that the Earth's temperature was going to rise, and by a significant degree. But he also thought that this would be a good thing, and. Uh, uh, like it's worth just reading this out. By the influence of the increasing percentage of carbonic acid, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, he says we may hope to enjoy ages with more equable and better climates, especially as regards the colder regions of the Earth. Ages when the Earth will bring forth much more abundant crops than at present for the benefit of propagating mankind. So a lot of interesting words in here. He already sure that, saw that propagating mankind, we were, you know, spreading our influence across the world, but we're also propagating in terms of increasing populations. Um, I think most of it we would now regard as, well, I don't know that it's more equitable and better climates. In some regards, for some people it might be, but actually the impact of climate change we know is in many, many, many respects um, very bad news. And this was reflected, I think, in, in the latest IPCC report, where they comment that recent changes in the climate are widespread, rapid and intensifying, and again, unprecedented in thousands of years. So again, our climate is now um, behaving in ways that actually we haven't seen, at least in, in terms of human civilization. It doesn't actually say in this statement that it's damaging, but of course, if we look even over the last few years and the sort of extreme events and huge losses of life by extreme weather events and the damage that warming is doing to ecosystems um, and and to the oceans and so forth, we know that uh, Arrhenius' view of climate change, um, he was looking at at it through rose-tinted spectacles. And the reality is that it, it is changing our weather and our climate in ways that are actually quite dangerous for life, all life on this planet.
I wanted to just now give you a slightly different perspective because we kind of sort of think of of climate change as being about uh, greenhouse gases, and um, and it's true that that is actually the, the 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 thing that we have to be most concerned about. But actually, I just wanted to talk about the fact that actually human interference in the climate system has been going on for millennia. And this is a perspective that's slightly different uh, than the one we usually think about. And this is about forest cover and, and uh, it's quite interesting. So um, you can see here two maps, the current forest cover in pale green and the original forest cover estimated between the end of the last glacial period and the rise of humans. And so, you know, currently about 32% of land on Earth is covered by forests. But look how much was covered before we started to propagate our, uh, and influence uh, the land surface around the world. And uh, it's quite sobering. And if we think about what trees do for our climate system, and we're very concerned now about the Brazilian rainforest, uh, then we can see that actually already um, we have been changing the climate quite significantly, remembering that trees take up a lot of carbon dioxide, a lot of carbon and lock it away. And we can uh, zoom in a bit. And have a little bit of a look at where we live and look at European forest cover in the recent past, so the last um, few thousand years. Um, and here's Europe and the forested cover in Europe. By 300 in 1000 BC, a large part of the UK was heavily forested, um, as was huge swathes of, of certainly Northern Europe. And we can see that even by 300 BC, uh, forests were being uh, removed by humans, probably for their livelihoods and so forth. And as time goes by, we can see that actually Europe and much of the uh, southern part of the UK is being heavily deforested. By the time we get to the 1500s, there's not much left of the forests except around the big mountain ranges in Europe and up in Scotland. And there's this huge removal of forests, probably some of it actually uh, to do with shipbuilding, uh, the 1500s through to the, the 17, 1800s. But you can see how dramatic that change is. So if we go back to where we were 1000 BC to where we are um, in the, fairly recently, we can see that we've had a, a massive change on our landscape and a massive removal of very effective carbon sinks. So we have been interfering with the climate system for a very, very long time. But more than that, we can now see that actually we've had a huge influence on biodiversity and ecosystems. Um, which is why I chose to talk about forests, because actually it's a link through to what is undoubtedly an equally um, big problem for us going forward. 
I think we have two two major challenges: uh, climate change and biodiversity loss. And of course, you know, biodiversity and the ecosystems that they support serve us in so many ways, as we can see in this diagram. And this, I think, is a very troubling set of numbers. This is from the uh, intergovernmental um, panel on bio biodiversity and ecosystem services, their report, and it's led to the parallel COPs on biodiversity that now go on alongside the climate change COPs. And I think, again, it's, it's, it's useful to look that actually humans have an impact on biodiversity um, regardless of climate change. So although these problems are interrelated, they're also quite independent. And of course, even if we didn't have climate change, we would have a major problem with declines in nature just because of uh, the direct exploitation um, of nature, uh, the way that we use land and sea, as you can see in the dark blue. And um, I've just given you an example, actually, of deforestation in Europe. We see the effects of pollution, which are very large, and of invasive alien species, which we know about, of course, now that we have this huge transport across continents of, of goods and services. And then there's climate change. But it is only one of a number of big drivers. And it's worth, you know, thinking about this uh, as a separate issue to climate change and thinking about what are we going to do about declines in nature, um, both as a separate but also a, a uh, combined problem. Because some of the solutions for climate change will involve um, land use and, and so forth. And therefore, we, we have to go forward mindful of the fact that biodiversity is under threat. And whatever we look for as solutions to climate change, particularly uh, zero carbon energy sources, we have to think about what will be the impact on biodiversity. So we can see here some really very, very uh, um, disturbing numbers. And I think it comes down then, if when you put all this together into what I call the scale of the human enterprise in a globally interdependent world. So this is where we've come to within, I would say, the last 150 years. And um, I used to call this, I, I made this diagram way back when I was in the Met Office, I called it the circle of securities. So we have these securities that we rely on for our health and well-being, um, and they're all interlinked. So the pale green box circles, we can see you can't really talk about food security unless you talk about water security. Health security, you can't talk about without thinking about food security. And of course, energy security is part of health security. And so it goes on. You can see why I've drawn it in the way that I have. And then in the middle, in this green circle, is what I call the key drivers of 21st century change. The things that we have to think about beyond just climate change. 
um, and the status quo today, we have to think about the fact that many more people live now in cities, so urbanisation. So we now live in large cities, so we're, we're actually very vulnerable to these securities that we rely on. We're not self-sufficient anymore. We have population growth, which is already putting enormous press, pressures on food and water and energy and so forth. We have limited natural resources, and that goes back to the previous slide about biodiversity and ecosystem services. And indeed, actually, one of the most precious natural resources we have is fresh water. And I think in the, in the future, uh, the access to fresh water and clean water will actually uh, be a, a real driver of how we'll live. Um, and actually, it could be a, a determining factor for some countries which are already under water stress. And then, of course, we've got within, if those weren't enough, we've now got weather, climate variability and change to deal with in the context of all of these. So that led um, John Beddington to comment that uh, um, he was the government chief scientist, I should say, when I was at the Met Office and we were good friends. Um, and he called this the perfect storm. And he wrote, can nine billion people be fed equitably, healthily and sustainably? Can we cope with the future demands on water? Can we provide enough energy to supply the growing population coming out of poverty? And there I think you know of countries, if you've ever been to India, you wonder how we can ever, how uh, the huge poverty that exists there and the huge population of India, how can we ever achieve a, a better life for all those people? And then, of course, if that wasn't enough, can we do all this whilst mitigating and adapting to climate change? And uh, yes, we have a huge challenge ahead of us. And I think, you know, just finally on this point, I um, this is an area that finally is emerging around the debates on climate change, which is human rights and justice. And um, this is a, a, a quote from a UN uh, official, I suppose around the time of the Paris COP in 2015, and, and it says climate change affects many human rights, undercutting the rights to health, to food, to water. It may even affect the right to self-determination. And I think this is one of the sort of fundamental ethical issues that we have to grapple with. Um, as you can see uh, in the previous diagram, I felt that we were already um, uh, in difficulty about uh, uh, human rights to health, to food, to water. I think this idea of you know, self-determination is so important and one that I hope you'll debate a bit in the, in the, in the coming lectures. And I can still recall... Um, uh, when I was, I went to Paris to the meeting and I sat on a panel with the president of Kiribati. And Kiribati was, is already, as he put, enters the end game against climate change. So, so for those who were saying to me, particularly the sceptics, oh, this is all a nonsense, 
it's going to cost too much and anyway nothing's going to be a problem until the end of the century I would just say go and look at Kiribati so Kiribati now is inundated very often at high tides with saline water so the croplands are being ruined and so forth and I remember him sitting there on this panel and talking about the fate of his citizens and saying that what he's focusing on now is so that all his people can migrate with dignity. So he's preparing them to, to, to leave their homeland now, but to have the, the skills, the tools, the wherewithals to be valuable citizens elsewhere. And I thought that that was actually um, a very, very moving in the sense of uh, they've had their right to self-determination effectively removed already by climate change. And we have to think about how do we help these people have a, a good future in another land. Uh, and of course, you know, there is another one not so far from home that was talked about a bit, but um, Fairbourne in, in, in West Wales. I used to go to Fairbourne for my summer holidays when I was a small child. Um, one of these houses on the seafront there. It's the village that's being surrendered to the sea. So sea level rise and damaging storms will remove this village in the next few decades. So wherever we look, people's right to self-determination and where they live is one of the factors of climate change that we need to spend much more time on. And hopefully you'll be talking about it in terms of human rights and justice. And it's, and it's, of course, you know, the, the most recent COP, COP27, the proposal um, to, to take forward loss and damage is a real part of how the developed world helps those who are less able to cope with the impacts of climate change, uh, which, after all, is what we have done to the planet. And so I come getting to the end here, but I think this is this for me was one of the um, most important addresses that uh, Antonio Guterres ever made. And I think his words sort of encapsulate actually that whole, the whole challenge of climate change, biodiversity, the fact that the this wonderful planet that we live on has nurtured all this amazing nature and that it is not our god-given right to destroy it and as he put it making peace with nature is the defining task of the 21st century it must be the top top priority for everyone everywhere so i think you know when we think about what are we going to do about climate change and we're going to debate it then i think remember his words as he said this is a moment of truth for people and the planet alike COVID and climate have brought us to a threshold. We cannot back, go back to the old normal of inequality, injustice and heedless dominion over the earth. Instead, we must step towards a safer, more sustainable and equitable path. We have a blueprint, the 2030 Agenda, for this he's referring here to the Sendai Agenda for Disaster Risk Reduction, Resilience, the Sustainable Development Goals, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. The door is open, the solutions are there. 
Now is the time to transform humankind's relationship with the natural world and with each other. And we must do so together. Solidarity is humanity. Solidarity is survival. Very, very deep words here that uh, we need to, I think, have in, in our minds when we think about what we, we can do personally about climate change. And actually it puts it in, I want to put it into context about how deeply embedded these issues are now in, in history and how recent human civilization has developed. And this is from a, a really good book called The Human Planet by Lewis and Maslin. Um, and I show this because actually, of course, at the end of the day, it's all about what we value and what, how we go forward in future economically, let alone everything else. And this is just a sort of a schematic showing um, the, the, the black curve being the global environmental impact, which, you know, could, could be, a, um, it's a combination of, 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 of carbon emissions, it's a combination of land use change, all of which I've covered, and how that has accelerated with the industrial capitalism, but of course mercantile capitalism was part of the uh, great deforestations of 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 of, uh, of Europe, and then you know we've begun to use land for agriculture. So you can go right back to those early diagrams I was showing where we were starting to clear change to use land differently for our own purposes. And then, of course, where are we now in this great acceleration? We've come into this world, actually, of consumer capitalism, which has been an enormous driver of climate change and of CO2 emissions and of biodiversity loss and so forth. And therefore, I think you have to ask the question is what comes after capitalism? How do we decide what should drive our, our economies? Is it gross domestic um, Product production, which in my, it involves more cons more consumption, or is it uh, an economy that values different things? Um, and of course, when we look at the great acceleration, it's not. There have been some good things, and we could look at this global environmental impact, of course, as um, like the uh, population growth on this planet, which has been exponential in the recent past and that's because we have new medicines better health we have a green revolution we have more food we have access to energy so we have better living conditions and that has led uh, the population growth from one and a half billion in 1900 to seven billion today and rising so we have to see this very much as, as well as a socio-economic challenge as well as a climate challenge or a biodiversity challenge I could spend a lot more on this, but I won't. But uh, if you're interested, do have a read of, of um, Mark's book. And then finally, I wanted to end somehow with a word of some words of hope. And this is from a man called Piers Sellers, who was somebody I worked with in my early days as a scientist. He was he worked on on land atmosphere processes in in climate models, and he and I. He and I interacted over, over um, quite a few years, actually. And then he decided he wanted to be a NASA astronaut. And so he chain, chain, trained as an astronaut 
and he flew on the space station several times. And then in uh, 2016, beginning of 2016, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And so he knew that he hadn't many more months to live. And he wrote this wonderful piece in the New York Times, which I, I think is kind of where I sit on, on how we should approach the, the future. And he said, new technologies have a way of bettering our lives in ways we cannot anticipate. And I think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, technologies, technology is going to get us out of a lot of these issues. It's going to help us to get to, to net zero. Won't do all of it, but it'll do a lot. He says, there is no convincing demonstrated reason to believe that our evolving future will be worse than our present, assuming careful management of the challenges and risks. And I think that, I think he's right on that. We need to to actually be well informed so we can, even at a personal level or a national level, manage our challenges and risks based on the best possible science and technology. He says, history is replete with examples of us humans getting out of tight spots. Again, interesting discussion point there that we could have. The winners, winners tended to be realistic, pragmatic and flexible. The losers were often in denial of the threat. And actually, it kind of reminds me that the losers were often in, the denial, in denial of the threat. Of the sceptics that I used to come up against, and of course now the increasingly vocal oil lobby, which we have seen at the past COP, and I fear will invade the next COP in, in the United Arab Emirates. But I think, you know, the, the words here are winners tended to be realistic, pragmatic and flexible. Some words to um, think about, I think, going forward. And then he went on to say, and I think this is, this is so wonderful. He says, as an astronaut, I spacewalked 220 miles above the Earth. Floating alongside the International Space Station, I watched hurricanes cartwheel across oceans. The Amazon snake its way to the sea through a brilliant green carpet of forest. And gigantic nighttime thunderstorms flash and flare for hundreds of miles along the equator. From this God's eye view, I saw how fragile and infinitely precious the earth is. I'm hopeful for its future. Uh, I don't need to say anything else, I think. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.